Hello, my oral surgery friends. This is your host, Dr. Grant Stuckey. In this podcast, you will hear surgeons discussing ways to improve the practice of oral and maxillofacial surgery. The goal of this podcast is to evaluate every aspect that a surgeon can improve in order to create a better experience for patients, staff, and the surgeon. Most of the information shared in this podcast will be based on personal experience and opinions. The methods discussed are meant to provoke thought and should be supplemented with research into the approved studies prior to making changes to one's way of practice. Without further ado, please enjoy this episode of Everyday Oral Surgery. All right, welcome to another episode of Everyday Oral Surgery. Today I'm with Dr. Omar Abubakar. He is an oral and maxillofacial surgeon practicing in Virginia, currently the chairman of the VCU program, the OMFS program. Omar, great to have you on the episode today. And great happy, to be with you. Happy birthday. What? Yes. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you. All right. You may not know this, but many years ago, I externed in VCU and had a great experience at your program for a couple of weeks. So super excited to talk to you about your program and a lot of other stuff today. My question, was I nice to you or not? <laughs> you were nice, yes. <laughs> Dr. Okay. Strauss gave me a hard you time. But... <laughs> you never know. You're going to have to be nice to everybody who comes across you because you never know where and when you're going to run into them. It's like it's literally the story of our lives, and that's how I conducted it. I told first-year dental students that I treat them like colleagues because I know there will be colleagues, at least 99.9% of them are going to graduate. And I better treat a colleague, a first-year dental students as a colleague. And then when I run into them, they said, oh, my, he was so nice to me. I don't need to get anything out of it just so you can have a good memory of the interaction or the encounter. Yes, exactly. Well, my first question for you is if you could just give us a history of your training and kind of how you got to where you're at. Uh, it's a long way. <laughs> I was just about to write a book. I thought if I take three days to write a book about my story, but I get busy with other things. But anyway, I'm originally from Libya. This is for some people, maybe known, maybe unknown country. I went to dental school first time in Egypt. That was right out of high school, just like the system in Middle Eastern Europe. And okay. came to United, and then I was lucky or good to get a scholarship from the Libyan government. When I went back, they just started dental school, so I was on top of the class of the dental school. So they took me as a teaching assistant. There they call it teaching assistant when you first start, and they sent me to United States to get further education so I could go back and teach. Of course, I came to Pittsburgh directly to Pittsburgh, and sometimes you have a plan, and somebody else had a different plan. And your plan get on the wastebasket because the other plan is more important and it meant to be that way. So I did PhD. I did research there. I did a PhD. And then I did my residency and did the dental school. Again, part of dental school, modified version of dental school to get my American DMD. And I get a research fellowship sponsored by the American Association of Oral Maxwell Surgeon. Thanks to them. Put that there. Nice. Um, so, yeah. So I spent, I don't know how many years my parents used to tell me, oh, are you going to be students for the rest of your life? I said, you know, one day I won't be a student. So I know that. For how long I'll be a student, I can't tell you. So when I graduated from University of Pittsburgh, literally, I didn't have a plan, so to speak, to go to an academic. But one of my chief residents, and I'm going to say that because he's retiring in a few weeks or a few months, my chief resident said, I asked him if he has a job. You know, I want to work with him. 
And he said, no, I, I mean, I don't have a job, but, but I think you should try academics because you kind of fit for academic. I said, you think so? He said, yeah, just try it. And if it doesn't work, come back and I'll give you a job. And of course, I came in to Virginia, blessed enough to be around one of our giants in all my surgery, Dr. Laskin, and the rest is history. You know, I was there for faculty as a faculty for 10 years, and I was lucky enough to be promoted, blessed enough to be promoted to, to the chairman. And for over the 10-year period, I got promoted from assistant professor to associate professor. So in, in 10 years, I got my full professorship, was very busy, faculty, but the chairman position opened up, so I applied for it, and I got it. So I've been chairman since 2002. Wow. And yeah, I've been busy clinically. I have practiced two days a week. Tuesday is my clinic day with the residents with me sometimes. Most of the time, I should say now, lately. On Thursday, I'm in the operating room. I'm part of the clinic team. So every other Monday, I'm in the clinic team at the hospital. And we have an activity with our orthodontic department. We have an orthognatic clinic every other Friday. Okay. So I've been busy Lately, I narrowed my practice to things that everybody else does, wisdom teeth and implants, mostly wisdom teeth. I have faculty now that are doing implants. So gradually, I'm handling things to our junior faculty and our faculty who want to carry the torch beyond us. I narrowed my practice to cleft and an orthognatic surgery and dental alveolar, of course. You know, dental alveolar, you can't stay away from dental alveolar. As long as you're yes. an old surgeon, dental alveolar, you know, That's right. it, yeah, it's fun. But I do that with supervision and kind of working with the residents. And it's been a wonderful journey. That's awesome. I mean, there's a a lot of topics we could talk about. But one I wanted to talk to you about was a little bit about your advocacy for doctors and the way they use opiates in their practice. I mean, the first question is, how did you get involved with doing stuff like this? You know, once again, I didn't script the story. The story was scripted and I just executed the story. And the story is that... I was up to 2013, I was just like any other oral surgeon, busy with the clinical stuff and teaching. And opioid is not on my mind, except when I write a prescription for opioid after wisdom teeth or after orthognatic or whatever surgery I do and handle it to the patient. At best, I handle it to the patient. At worst, I give it to the assistant to handle it to the patient. And as if that opioid prescription, nothing to you know think about, seem really... My and my colleague's prescription for pain management is a prescription for opioid. Mm-hmm. No more, no less. Until I find out my son was addicted to heroin that was following brief addiction to prescription medications after shoulder surgery. And I'm sure he was exposed earlier than that and exposed to alcohol and cigarettes, just like I thought any other teenager. There's nothing unusual about it. Yeah. But I look back into it and that was the precursor for addiction to prescription medication that gradually and quickly led him to prescription to heroin. And he was admitted. So I find out literally after Thanksgiving day, seven years ago or eight years ago, that was 2013, that he was addiction to heroin. So I immediately, and he asked me and his brother and sister to get treatment, place treatment. So put him into a treatment center in town, in-house, and he entered a treatment and he went to what we call recovery now. I don't use the word clean because the opposite to it is something different. So he went to a recovery phase from literally from December, January, February, March. Everything is going well. And my naive understanding back then is that, oh, he's getting out of the hole forever. Bye-bye addiction. Uh, this, in August, he moved into a 
an apartment with what we call a sponsor, which is a colleague or a person who is in long-term recovery, people in recovery for years. So they guide them and give them support if they think or they relapse. So he moved into community. He got a full-time job and got to start back going to community college, local community college, to be an AMT, which he always wanted to be. Oh, cool. Yeah, and I thought life is better now. I don't have to be anxious about where is he and what's happening. And literally in September 26th, I remember that, okay, ingrained in my memory. It was a Friday. He happened to be around in the medical center for doctor's appointment. I said, Dad, are you busy? Because I've got to stop by and just talk to you because I have an appointment with something with my work. And I'm going to stay around here because it's closer to you. So came into my office. We talked. We talked about recovery. We talked about this school. We talked about the future. And then I bought him books on a stethoscope for his course. And literally, we after that, we hug each other. And as we usually, always say, goodbye, goodbye. Love you, Dad. I love you, Adam. And we decided or we agreed that we meet tomorrow. That was Saturday for lunch. Saturday never came. And obviously, the next morning, 8 o'clock, I got a call from one of the local police stations telling me that you are Adam's dad. And I said, yes. And I said, Adam was found apneic, unresponsive, and pulseless. He was resuscitated. I mean, he's back in the emergency room in one of the local hospitals. And I went and I rushed to the hospital. I did not get to see him because he was intubated at the time. And four days later, Adam was, he had enough. I mean, he, his uh, organ came back, except that he had enough cerebral edema that he was not able to survive it as a human adult and functioning person. So they pronounced it four days later. And from there on, I went on a journey of trying to understand. I mean, obviously, as a father, there's no way to describe the agony or the suffering from loss of a child. So yeah. I literally had some group therapy for about a year. And then gradually, I came out and began to emerge out of it with an attempt to understand what this is about. And how come I miss all this? And I went to school for a year through a graduate program here at VCU and collaboration with some other university. And that program is called International Program for Additional Study. I understood more and learned more than I ever learned in my whole life before. Residency, dental school, rotations in medicine or cardiology or any of the system or any of the medical knowledge that I had before. None of it had exposed me both scientifically and otherwise to the concept of addiction and what's all about. Mm. And, you know, I, I really had it for my own personal understanding. And I said, maybe I could teach it. I did not have that as a specific plan. But like I said, it's not my plan. I and mean, then came out and start talking about the subject individually with people. And then gradually the opportunity opened itself to speak about it publicly, speak about my son's tragedy that most parents don't talk about their son dying of an overdose of their son addicted because the stigma attached to addiction, the stigma attached to heroin, prescription medication, nobody talks about it. Yeah. So part of my advocacy was to talk about it on behalf of the people that don't talk about it, people on behalf of the people that have no platform to talk about it, and people that are ashamed to talk about it. And I figured, mm -hmm. you know, with all my situation, you know, my status, so to speak, if I talk about it, the average person would be encouraged to go and talk about it. And sure enough, when I go and talk about it, people come at the end of the, my lectures that I have given over the years. I spoke to more than 120, 150 organizations, local, national, and even international in Canada and other places. I went to church, the synagogue, to schools, to everywhere that I could go 
talk about the issue. It's just not for doctors. I think doctors are part of the story, but the society and parents are the other parts of the story. So, so yeah. I have been on that journey, like I said, to, number one, bring the issue into focus. The second issue or the second purpose is to educate students, and I changed the curriculum of our department to have to include one lecture on pain management. That was not there before. One lecture to dental students about pain management and one or two hours lectures on substance use disorder. Okay, they go together. So in addition, I talked to the local organization, the local areas of interest on the subject, number one, to prevent it, because that's and none of it, obviously, is going to help. I spoke even to the Senate, the Committee on Education at the U.S. Senate in Washington, D.C. So, you know, my activities, it's not, obviously, it's not going to bring my son back. I mean, that is, I'm smart enough to know that is not the case. Yeah. But it's number one, to save somebody else's son because the suffering that I went to. And number three, it's just the right thing to do. Once you have knowledge, I learned from being an academic for a long time, just like Bill Gates shares his wealth. People are academic. And, and for me personally, I have to share the wealth of knowledge that I have. And anybody who needs that knowledge, they get it. Just so you know, and your audience should know, none of the honorarium, initially I started doing without honorarium and asking people to donate money to organization that addresses addictions and substance use disorder. And then eventually I charged honorarium, but I collected this honorarium in a fund that I have opened a, started a memorial lectureship in the medical school on addictions and substance disorder. And we just assigned a scholarship for dental students who had an interest in research or activities in addictions at the School of Dentistry at VCU and another scholarship at the University of Pittsburgh also for students just so it could stimulate one student and one dentist about the issue. And that's my journey. I don't know where it's going to end up leading me, you know, the rest of my life, but there is no getting off the subject for me. I said that before, that I'll start talking about addiction when I stop talking. So that's my journey. It was not in a book, wow. but it's in a few minutes. <laughs> <laughs> That's terrific. I appreciate you sharing that. And I am—I mean, it's very amazing that you are able to share that story because like you're saying, there's different stigmas around it and it's just probably painful for you in some ways to kind of relive it and discuss it. But how great that is for the rest of us to learn from that story. Very, very cool. Yes. Thank you. you I have. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. I was going to say, I have six kids myself. I have three girls and three boys, and I can only imagine how troubling that would be to lose one of them and kind of go through something like that. But that's great that you're able to kind of help others with that and say, hey, here's my story, and here's some of the things that you could learn from it. Yeah. Listen, I'm reading a book now, and one of the sentences that I read that kind of rang a resonance in me is that suffering tenderizes your heart and you know when we do when your heart is tenderized you can't go wrong about being good for the rest of your life to others and i think that's i feel like that suffering of loss for any kind of suffering clearly made us more human than we are and sometimes we'll forget that we are so that's how i look at it wow you know i think that we don't get a lot of good training and education on this topic both the topic of just how to deal with opiates and how dangerous those drugs are 
and also how to deal with suffering and trials like this that can come into your life. So I think this is very helpful. What advice do you have for young surgeons who are starting their careers and are maybe unsure of how to prescribe and how you know to administer opiates to people? You know, this is a fundamental question that we should ask ourselves in light of the new epidemic that we had suffered through as a country over the last 25 years. Grant, keep in mind that the opioid issue is unique in our culture. Clearly, heroin and other drugs are everywhere. But if you look at the last 20 years, a lot of countries, the deaths from overdose from opiate has gone down. And I think because we uniquely in the United States, and not just Maxwell Hayes surgeon, but uniquely all medical nerve specialties, treat pain aggressively, meaning that opioid is very often is the first line of treatment. If you look at Europe and you're going to have your wisdom teeth and it's not even sedation. And again, one have to be careful comparing one culture to the other. But genetically, most of us come from either Europe or from Africa, from the places. So that means our tolerance for pain or dealing with pain as a human is not a whole lot different if we take the time and do it. I think we substituted management of pain, the word management, by treatment. And a treatment implies you think you have a definitive, just like our research, definitive treatment for that specific condition. One of my, and I don't want to advertise in your show on books, but one of my favorite books, the surgeon who ended up being ill himself, and and I speak of, from a patient side, he said, when a surgeon doesn't have his knife to cure with, he has his tongue to cure with. And what I mean is that pain management should be conversation between you and the patient, between you and the parents, conversation that starts before you do the surgery, and it doesn't end after the surgery. You come out of surgery, and you could say, listen, surgery went out much easier than I thought. It took me a whole lot of time, so I think we're going to have expect a whole lot less pain than we thought before, so our treatment is going to be so-and-so, or vice versa. And you're going to say, our surgery took a little bit longer. I had to take a lot of bone. I had to do a lot of work. It took a long time. And I expect the pain to be a little bit more, so we're going to do this sort of kind of treatment. And each one of the situations with the same patient could be a different pain management. So that's essential. I think the conversation about the pain, so you don't have a mismatch of what the treatment should be and what's the treatment goal would be. You know, I mean, I think the treatment goal has never been and it shouldn't be a zero pain. I tell people, if you don't want zero pain, let me keep you sedated for the next two, three days. <laughs> the goal is to manage the pain. And so, Grant, we used to say, we used to give the prescription without explanation as to what the treatment is. So the youngster will take one tablet and with their understanding, without understanding that, oh, your pain is going to be better with the prescription. The patient understanding that this pain medicine, since it's dispensed and since we paid money for it, it must make my pain zero. So they go and take the pain medication and one Percocet doesn't make the pain zero. So, well, maybe I have to take two or call you and say, can I take two or take two on your on their own? Aiming for zero would never know zero. So, so I think that mismatch of expectation of what post-operative pain should be had led to us prescribing more potent medication. The other part is that, like I said, no discussion at all is worse than any kind of discussion, even if it's a minimal discussion. I did it. We all did it, that you write the prescription and walk out of the door 
and let the assistant explain to the parents what kind of how do they use the pain medication. The assistant is not qualified. She doesn't know the she doesn't even know what kind of surgery was done sometimes. She doesn't even know. So so this kind of aspect, the peripheral aspect of pain management is what and everybody has their own style. So I don't dictate or I don't tell you what they should or should not say or should or should do. But I think it should be the prescription only part of the of the pain management. The second part is that if you ask me, and I'm giving actually a TED talk, a youth TED talk to the high school next week. Oh, nice. Yes, about early exposures to substances of abuse of young people. And if you ask me, what's the safest, Dr. Abubakar, what's based on what you know from addictions and from you know development of the brain, what's the safest amount of a drug or for that matter, cigarette or alcohol before the age of 20? And I'll say zero. Zero. Because any exposure, remember, the brain is still in its third trimester, so it's not completely developed when it gets out of the womb. If it stays, we live such a long life, we need a complex neurological system that has taken 18 years to finish, or 19 or 20 years to finish. And those stages of development of that system are crucial all the way to the last minute. Any substances of abuse, any trauma, psychological, any form of injury, that structure why it's developing, it's a permanent damage and very difficult to treat or very difficult to get over. So I, this is a long answer, but I want the young people to think the pain management in the discussion for 10, 15 minutes or even three minutes after surgery and before surgery is not any less crucial than the surgery itself. So opioid for young people, you have to be careful with it. Yes. And it's doable. You could manage pain with that opioid. It's been done. It happens. There are a lot of our colleagues out there who manage pain, even wisdom teeth pain, with that opioid and successful at it. And the patient are not complaining. It's the opposite. Now, parents and patients have a tough time with, with giving opioid to their kids. So discard all that previous knowledge and modeling that we did for us, the older generation, having opioid as the first line, safer. Those notions are not as accurate, not at least for every patient. And you don't know which patient is more vulnerable than the other. So universal precaution with opioid with young people. That's what I say. Okay. You know, I think this is a tough problem because probably a lot of us have a mental block here. You know, it's, it's tough because like what you're saying is requiring more effort. It's requiring more communication. It's requiring taking time and caring about this stuff. And when you're a busy surgeon and you're going to go on, you know, every 20 or 30 minutes from case to case, yes. it's hard. It's hard to take that time and, and to, and the prescription for us is more of an annoyance. And so usually that's what we do. We put a stamp on it and everyone gets 20 tablets of Norco and yes. the, the assistant yes. talks to the parent and we don't want the patients bothering us. And so that's why we say, oh, here, take a bunch of pain pills and don't call me because I got other issues to deal with. And so there's many facets yeah. of this problem. What are your thoughts on yes. that? Uh, oh, absolutely. I think, you know, we're surgeons. So we, like I said, we rely on our knives or drills to get what you need to get done yeah. as fast as possible way. But I'm telling you, after 30 years of from just practicing and obviously many years of training before that, the real joy in being a doctor at some point in time in your career would become the management of the patient, the interaction with the parent and the family. You're going to be so good if you're not already at the technical part 
you know, almost become, you become automated. And at some point in time, when you pay all the students loan, you pay all the tuition for the kids, you pay all your Tesla, you become, you start questioning what your life is about. Is it yeah. about making people better or is it about cutting people faster and better? And to me, I told you at the beginning is that I have joys from patients that I don't even operate on. People come to me with the mirage and I talk to them about how their condition is manageable and I'll be able to take care of them and they're going to be fine and, and they have a curable condition. The patient will get up and I don't pay it other than freaking $75 consult fees, but the patient will get up and give me a hug for just putting their mind at ease. And that is real joy practice at some point in time. If you don't build that kind of toward that point in your career where what you practice, what you do, bring joy to you on a momentary basis, it's going to be boring at some point in time. And you just start looking for your retirement date to the minute. I don't look for my retirement date because I feel I bring good to people life that is beyond money that I get paid. I don't need the money anymore. I work in academics, so I do need the money. But the truth is that it's not the wage, the real wage that bring me joy and give me fulfillment is the joy talking to people and patients. And before the surgery, after the surgery, and to the parents that things are going to be okay and the people how they feel, this are the kind of thing. So you're right. I think we almost feel under the pressure of having to take care of your students alone and your families. It's very tough, but just Keep that thread between you and that kind of fulfillment that you're eventually going to look for. Keep that thread there by just having maybe not five-minute conversation like I have with my patient, but two-minute conversation practice where you're going to do eight sets of wisdom teeth. Yeah. So it's difficult. I acknowledge that. You're too young, Ryan, to remember. But in my when I first came out in, in the 90s, literally the drug salesperson came into my office with a pack, with a box of prescription pads that has the name blank and the date and the signature and the doctor and the DA numbers. So, but it has a stamp in the middle that says Percocet, one tablet every four to six hours for pain, PRN, dispense 20 tablets. And all I did is wrote the patient's name and put the signature. And that's where the 20 tablets came from, by the way. It wasn't from <laughs> any research or study. Wow. So what do they do? They pass it on to my residents and they pass it on to my students. And subconsciously, that drug person taught me how to manage pain. Hmm. And I carried it through generation of people through my educational career, which I feel guilty about it now. <laughs> but that's how that time has come and gone. And we should think differently. We are, as surgeons, uh, better than just cutters. We are a curer of diseases and illnesses. Yeah. And I think management of pain should be part of what we do, not just with the knife and the drill and the saw. It's with who we are and the compassion that we provide for our patients and the concern for their wellness and for their kids' wellness. Those are the pieces that are kind of really makes us a doctor instead of a surgeon. Yeah. I mean, the word doctor to me is much bigger than a word surgeon. Yeah, that's a good point. Well, I'm thinking about this too. There's also the issue of dealing with the parents, you know, because there's a lot of parents when you sit down and you say, explain to them, hey, you know, we're going to minimize the opiates and we're not going to give you many pain pills. There's a lot of parents who get upset with that and they say, what, you're going to, my daughter's going to be in pain and how dare you do this and the whole, that whole discussion. Some people just don't seem to get the fact that you're actually trying to help them, not trying to harm them. 
And that can be a tough discussion. It's a very good point. And I, yeah, yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say, what do you recommend and how do you handle that when a patient or a parent is kind of confrontational and, you know, and is threatening maybe in that sense? So Grant, you and the audience should know that once you overcome that fear, it'll become clear to you that's no longer the case with majority of parents. And I'll tell you why, because I have that discussion and I preface it by saying, my concern is only for the pain. My concern is for your child. And I say, you heard about the opioid epidemic. That's why I want to talk about, don't take that personally that your kid could become addicted. And very frequently, patient or the parents will tell me, well, that's why I came to you because you want to talk about it. Hmm. So and there are studies that have shown that the survey of parents before and after that parents are not comfortable. The majority of parents, especially those who have helped their parents in close to the health field or parents who are aware of the issue in a little bit higher level, they are not comfortable with oral surgeons giving prescription to their children. Hmm. I have parents, at least people know about it and heard my me talking about it. And I have parents that sent me a letter grant, I mean, an email or a written letter telling me that their oral surgeon is still right for a lot of opioid. And they went to him and they had a discussion with him and he doesn't understand. Can I reach out to that oral surgeon and let him know that, you know, prescribing opioid is not safe? I'm telling you, this is real stories. Wow. So I discussed that a section of my lecture when I go talk about it. It's the opposite now to what it used to be. In other words, parents, I have not had even one parent push back to me when I have the discussion. The other thing is that I preface it by saying, I want to make sure your kid is comfortable and no pain. And whatever it takes, we'll do that. But here's the first line of treatment. And I'll say, I could write a prescription in five seconds because I can get that now electronically. So if we have to do this, we'll do it. But I feel we may, there's a good chance we may not have to do this. And they said, fine, I'm okay with that. A lot of parents said, I'm glad he said that. So you'll be surprised how many parents would actually are on board with that agenda and how very, very few parents are going to push back. And I think you're right. I think that the mental obstacle for us to cross to the other line, because yeah. that's how it used to be. It used to be that people demand pain medication because we have a culture of over-prescribing for pain medication. We shoot yeah. for the worst. The study has shown that the worst case scenario, in other words, the worst pain is possible only about 10% of the time. And even the worst pain is only possible for the first two, three days. So even when we write a prescription, I think it's safe up to three days. And some teenage, some teenage kids who are a high risk, maybe not even two, three days. I think one of the things that I forgot to mention to you is that you have to weigh the risk versus the benefit. And we know there is some risk factor for kids misusing the medication even though it's prescribed for pain, they may use it for other purposes. Kids with any form of mental illness, anxiety, depression, previous history of, of other substances, those are high-risk kids. Those are the one you do everything you can before you get right for opioid. For some, it's safe. Listen, for older people, I'm comfortable writing opioid granted for a short period of time, although for every single patient, my first-line treatment is non-steroidal plus Tylenol if need to be. I have a program that I go with my residents and students that you have to weigh the risk versus benefit. How much expectation of pain you're going to have and what is the risk for the person, at least for young people. For older people, I still weigh that risk, but the risk of addiction is much lower or substance misuse or abuse is much lower. So you can become more liberal to a point, of course, even with adults. 
Got it. Okay. But don't worry about that discussion. Have that discussion even short period of time with your patient and see what the reaction will be. Hmm. And you'll find the first, second, third, and fourth. And you'll say, okay, I'm going to keep having that discussion with my patient and parents until I run into somebody. And then I'll develop style or technique to talk with that person who is demanding opioids for their kids. I have not had a person for the last five years who asked me, can you give me something stronger? Can you give my kids something stronger? I have not that way. So I have not. And I have a busy practice. You know, I have residents with me six or, you know, between eight and 12 sets of wisdom teeth on Tuesday. And that's not the case. Nice. Yeah, it sounds like the way that you're wording it and the way you present it is very, very helpful to ease the minds of parents and teenagers. Yes. Because I think that discussion is critical so that they're prepared for what's to come and walk them through that. That's right. I mean, another question is, how do you recognize? Well, I guess the first question is, we've been talking about prescribing to the opiate naive patient. You know, what about the patient who's had a history and has had addiction and is coming off that and, you know, is on some of these medications to wean them off? How do we deal with those patients, especially when they're asking for opiates and we know there's a history or maybe we don't know there's a history? So it's a tough conversation in the past for us because both as dental students and as residents, we have not had the language or the skills or the personality to have a conversation, frank conversation with patients who either have a history of substance use or recovery and on medication for it or history that have, or a patient that have history of substance use disorder and sometimes they're not admitted to you or they're not on any medication. They're two kind of different. For those, let me just say this, the conversation with patients that you suspect that history had a history, even if you check the prescription monitor program, now you find out that they have three or four prescriptions you're going to have to have the conversation with the patient. You cannot escape away from it like I used to do by just giving them something and get them out of the door. Yeah. I don't have time for that. So you have to wear a personality of a compassionate person who I told them that I would I could not live and just tell you, if I say that to you, you just feel automatically you surrender. Your, you, we cannot have adversary conversation. That's a key. Okay. I mean, an accusatory conversation. And I say, where your compassion drapes to walk in and saying, I am concerned for you. I have, it's not about giving you or not giving medication. I could not, I tell patients, I could not live with myself if I'd be part of anything that happens to you. And that automatically makes the patient feel like you care about them more than they care about themselves. Yeah. So then patient will tell me, yeah, I'm in recovery or I, I stop or I still have a problem. And I have patients that tell me, I never thought about it that way. And I think I'm going to, and it may not change them. Your role is not to go out and change people. Your role is to educate people. You know, Mm -hmm. I don't want to put it into religious terms, but Jesus didn't come and say he wanted to change the world. He said he wanted to teach the world. And I think our role is to go teach people what we know and what we do. So anyway, I have that conversation with the patient. And if they are in recovery on medications, I will tell them that we're going to manage your pain. You're not going to suffer. Make sure that you know that. And we're going to do everything. I talked to their physician who managed their, say, Suboxone or Methadone. And I coordinate whatever treatment that I have with them. I would not stop their medication. I would not give them any additional. I give them what I give to other patients. I said, for other patients who are non-opioid issue, here's my protocol. And it works most of the time. And I think it's going to work for you to some degree. But if it doesn't, we'll find out a different solution to it in working with your physician. So make sure you make them feel that 
you're not adversaries. You're not trying to make them suffer just because they are an opioid you're gonna, or have a history of opioids. You're not going to be adversarial to them. You're going to be on their side. So somebody on Suboxone, you cannot stop the medication. You cannot give them narcotic because the narcotic wouldn't work for them. If you were to do, I had to do major surgeries in the operating room, and I coordinated with the physician that they stopped the Suboxone for maybe a day or two so the receptor would be open for narcotics. And when you give the narcotic, you give it to somebody else that dispenses it instead of them so you don't avoid any overdose. You give prescription for naloxone if need to be. But I think the key is to have that compassionate approach to this patient. Yeah. And I know sometimes you're going to run into the people that they're not. But if you have that compassionate conversation and working with the physicians, then you could manage the most difficult patient. And I, this is not a theory. I'm not telling you stuff that I just give lecture on. I tell you stuff that I practice and I tried and it worked in my hands. Hmm. And, and I think anything special about me, I have the same degree of compassion that all of us have when we went to this business. Yeah. All I do is just swear with these people that historically we didn't have compassion for because we think they're addicts. They're just like different kind of a species. And therefore, we have to deal with them differently. That's not the case. People, addicts or people who are addicted are human, affected with a disease that is beyond their control, believe it or not. And if you approach them from that standpoint, which is compassionate one, which we all have, then I think you can get away with a lot of things that historically we think we couldn't get away with. That's terrific. I feel, I feel very strong. I was also going to ask if you've experimented or used Xperel or some of these other long-lasting numbing agents. Have you had any success with that type of a stuff or no? Yes, I did. I used them. And I say not excessively, mainly to be honest with you, because in academic, you know, our reimbursement is low and the experiment had a little bit of cost to it yeah. that either the patient is not willing to bear. and uh, some. But I have used it. Um, and I think there are, now which prefaced by there are papers that came out uh, that indicate that it has an effect reducing opioid not and I have one of my residents who, actually not one of my residents, I have some of my graduates who are in the community in private practice, and they say they use it all the time, and it helps them with reducing or eliminating opioid. One of my former residents, and I don't want to say name because he may listen to the podcast, he literally called me and he said he had taken opioid totally out of his practice, including for sedation. Wow. So he doesn't use fentanyl for sedation, and he does not use, and he said, it's been successful, and he had had no problem at all. I mean, he did right for, but he uses other means like non-steroidal for post-operative, and he used the Xperol, and he used steroidal medication for either intravenously or locally. So he used a lot of adjunct medication to avoid opioid, and he's been successful. So it's one of the tools that you could use if you want to go on the journey of trying to reduce or eliminate opioid of your practice. And I think every tool that you use is going to be helpful. Because yeah. psychologically, we're just not comfortable. We're just given ibuprofen. Okay, by the way, when we give the ibuprofen, historically, we gave it, you have any ibuprofen at home? Yeah. Okay, take some at home. Well, patient is not, he didn't go to dental school, medical school. He go and takes 200 milligram when the pain is there and he stop it when the pain is not. The way I prescribe ibuprofen is a schedule Appropriate dose, appropriate duration. I say 600 or 800 milligrams every six hours of continuous basis for this 24 hours. That is different than taking stuff from over the counter when you get home. 
of course it's not going to work. Ibuprofen is not going to work. Yeah. But if you give something that is like supposed to be, then there is much. And I think that's why ibuprofen has not worked before. So we went mm-hmm. back to Vicodin because patients said, I took ibuprofen like you told me, and it's not working. Of course it's not working because we, it's just not the right dose. Yeah. So, yes, I think the question of the expert is a good one. And I would say the message for all surgeons is that it's not the only one. It should not be the only one. It should be part of the overall change to a approach of how we manage pain. That's critical. We, became, we were part of the problem at some point in time. Yeah. And we could be part of the solution by thinking differently and radically from the way we thought when we were part of the problem. That's great advice. I think, I mean, I was also going to ask you about that with your usage of opiates during a sedation. Over the years, I've left it behind and haven't really noticed any difference. But what is your experience with intravenous opiates? I don't use it anymore. And even on my day when I went to residence, I said, you keep the fentanyl out. So they learn now, even the assistant, they would not even draw the fentanyl on my day. I mean, there's some other my faculty, they still use it, but I don't use it. And, you know, I don't have science behind not using it. But my personal experience is that I don't want that kid to experience it. And I know they experienced the whole thing, the the fentanyl with the Versed, and, and they can't distinguish. But for those who have risk or at high risk, they probably could. Yeah. But I think more importantly, there are data that shows that even for an operator room use of opioid, there is a phase that's called post-narcotic hyperalgesia. In other words, studies have shown that people that received uh, general anesthetic with opioid in the operator room, when they go to the recovery room, and I'm talking for oral surgery, I'm talking general surgery and other procedure. When they go to the recovery room, they require more post-operative pain medication than those who receive intraoperative narcotic. Mm-hmm. So that means narcotic has post-narcotic hyperalgesia that it may be part of patient receiving or experiencing more pain afterwards in their post-operative period, say two, three days out. It's been shown that even one dose, at least in, I think in, in lab, that one dose of narcotic could cause this transient post-narcotic hyperalgesia. When you become hyperalgesic post-operatively, yeah. obviously you have more pain and potentially you ask for more pain medication. So, so the short answer to your question is, I've taken that out of my practice, and I try to not tell the anesthesiologist what to use and not to use because yeah. they don't like that. But I'll say my patients, especially for us, they're not going to have pain, so don't give them too much. Some of them are open-minded to it. Some some of them are not. But I say in my practice for the outpatient setting, it's out. Got it. And it's out for good. We give different sedation. We give Versed, and I give sometimes Presidex, sometimes I give. But everybody gets Versed and Ketamine. Yeah. It's a great analgesic. Ketamine is it's a powerful analgesic, and it has less of that issue. And then some patients receive Presidex in addition to it. So that's my kind of recipe. I don't want to yeah. go into details about the sedation, but that's my go-to on a daily basis. And we could modify, add more propofol, or sometimes I use I have machines, so I use more gas. But I avoid not cutting Yeah, that's been, I think the information you're sharing is really, really helpful. It's good to hear from someone like you that's been doing it for so many years and feels comfortable not using opiates IV and also having that discussion with the patients about the epidemic and trying to help them to avoid any possibility of addiction, I think is so key. And it's important for us to take that as a responsibility that we have, you know, to really help our patients in all aspects of the welfare, not just taking out the tooth, but 
everything that is after that, taking it seriously because these prescriptions can indeed cause trouble for people. And I think by and large, we blow that off and most of us act like, oh, you know, that's not going to happen to my patients. And I'm only giving them 20 tablets. You know, I can't cause any trouble. But for some patients, it does. And it can be a really life-changing situation. So, Yes. If you, if you go on the internet and you search for wisdom teeth and opioid addiction, you'll find parents testifying to that effect that their first exposure and the beginning of their addictions to opioid was from having wisdom teeth taken out and getting opioid prescription to it. Many testimonies and on YouTube. So it's not a theoretical yeah. possibility. This is real. And, and I have parents send me a letter, me letter from Boston, some of a letter from Texas telling me that their kid's first exposure and that was it. They're, they say their brain latched into it. And that's a common term. So, so it's possible. I shiver on the thought that I may have been one of this uh, situation. And I think yeah. I don't have to. And I will not, knowing what I know now. That's awesome. Well, I think you've shared a lot of good stuff. And I really appreciate you sharing that, that story about your son. Sorry you had to go through that. And what a hard thing for your family. But great that you found something a silver lining there, you know, something good that you could kind of learn from and help others with. Really, really cool. My last question. Go ahead. Yes. No, I said, I said, you know, the way we look at it is that the not to be religious, but your faith is tested by taking the dearest thing to you, just like God with Abraham. And I think my faith has led me to believe that there is a reason why I have to do what I do now. Yeah. I think, well, I was going to also ask you in a different vein was, you mentioned that you had worked with Dr. Laskin, and is he still there at VCU, or does he come in every now and then? Yes, yes. That's awesome. Yes. He's, <laughs> yes. he's a legend. He's a legend. At a different time, I'll share with you how I got the job, but it was incredible. I mean, it's like, that's how I feel. Despite my tragedies and my suffering, I still feel like I'm still blessed to be where I am now. I mean, I think my suffering is part of my learning journey, but with it came a lot of rewards and a lot of, but he is around and I'm blessed to have known him and spend time with him. I learned a lot from him, maybe not yeah. oral surgery, but other things. You know, I went to Chicago for my training at the University of Illinois. And I think that's kind of where he, you know, first got his training and did did his teaching and Yes. I mean, still his legacy affects us there as residents, even though he's been gone for many years. But I always love that the stories about him and kind of the legacy he left was how important it is to learn every day and to care about the patients. And the message from him was always it's more than just, you know, cutting and taking out a tooth. It's you got to really care about people. Yes. Yeah. In fact, it's ironic that you asked me about him because. I have to go for lunch, and after my lunch, oh, I'm going awesome. to go meet and see him. <laughs> I haven't seen him for. Oh, long. that's so great! Yes, yes. I, I will yeah. tell him what he just it meant to be. See, some of the stuff is in surreptitiously, meaning like totally by accident, and yet end up with a meaning. So if I go and tell him that I have talked to somebody who went to where you went, and he talked about you and asked about you, I think it's going to make him feel better. It's going to definitely put oh, some awesome. joy in his heart. Just by having this kind oh, of mention. terrific. Well, yeah. say hi to him yeah. for me. We end every podcast with four rapid fire questions. The first question, the first question for you is: yes. What is the best book you've read in the past year? Oh my God! I can't believe you asked me this question because 
the question that the book that I just finished reading and, and tell you how good the book is that I had wow. listened to the book twice because I ride my bicycle and this book called The Second Mountain. I'm giving it to all my friends and people that wanted to read something, at least that I feel like they would enjoy the book. It's called The Second Mountain by okay. David Brooks. What's the main idea? What's it about? The main idea is, and David Brooks is he's a writer for I think New York Times, and he the main idea of the book is this: Do you want to work for your resume, or want to you work for your eulogy? Oh, okay, eulogy. For the eulogy, <laughs> interesting. Do you work for your resume, or you for eulogy? And he has. If you don't have time for the book, there's six minute TED talk. You could listen to it, and the entire book is something around that but the, the book the writing of the book and the language wow. of the book is poetic i mean they're telling you in addition to the fact that is uh that's also a meaningful book for a lot of people including myself if you ever read the book you probably could see me or you could hear me you know say i know what he's talking about now so that's a book let's let's well, question. I'm gonna go read that book every one who's mentioned a book on the podcast I've done over 80 podcasts, and every time someone mentions a book I haven't read, I go and read it, and I'm not disappointed, so I'm looking forward to reading this book. Email me. Once, once you read the book, okay. email me something about it. You know, just I, I just want your, okay. to Will see do. if you like it or not. The next question is, what non-oral surgery thing have you done or do in your life that helps you with your daily oral surgery skills? You mean skills or just oral yeah, surgery? just in general, surgery? like your daily what you do in, in the office. Is there anything outside of the office that you do that kind of helps you? You know, I think my teaching helps me to be a better surgeon because I take the time to explain to first year. I mean, teaching mostly dental students, but I teach my residents. My residents are sometimes smarter than me, so so I don't have to. But taking the time and explaining in very simplistic language to dental students about concept and things made me better for my patients. So when they come in and I talk to them, take that experience of explaining things in simple word and simple language makes the patient say, well, I'm glad you told me this because I did not understand that before. Nobody explained it to me like this before. So some, to some ways, I fertilize my patient care from my education. And of course, what I use, what I learn from my patient care, I take it to my students and teach them that stuff. So they go back both ways. So yes, that I mean, sound like they're related. So it's not unrelated oral yes. surgery, but that's so how teaching it is. has has helped you. Probably similar to that, you know, is just being a parent and the way we have to try to talk to our kids and explain things slowly, and that can help. Same thing with patients, but that's a good one. I like that. The next question is, what's that? Hey Grant, I had I tell you, one year I gave a I gave a speech instead of the residents giving a speech during the graduation. I gave a speech and it's about the top 10 things my residents and <laughs> oh, kids really? have in common. And yes, and number one, and number one, so you go, I don't know if you remember, you know, what's yes. the name used to give the top 10 things. What's the name? Yeah. So a number one things that my kids and residents have in common is that my kids taught me to be a better teacher and my residents taught me to be I a like better that. parent. <laughs> I like that a lot. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, I'm sure a lot of oral surgery directors feel like they have a second family, you know, and the residents are all their kids and they're trying to 
teach them to grow up. But yeah, it's, there's a lot of similarities. I don't yell at my kids. I, like I don't that. yell at my residents. And because that makes me feel like my residents are going to get mad at me one day. They remember me. <laughs> right. The same thing with my kids. So truly, there's a lot of things. Of course, my kids interrupt me anytime. My <laughs> residents will interrupt me anytime. Oh, my goodness. One of these days, uh, your podcast will over the top 10 things. Oh, I'd love I can dig that. it out from somewhere. Did you take that from David Letterman? He was always doing the top 10. That's, that's so funny. Awesome. Yes. Yes. Oh, yeah, yeah. You're yes. old enough to remember David Letterman. <laughs> the next question is just a silly one, but the question is, what forceps do you use to extract tooth number 14? <laughs> <laughs> Any forceps that would I could get hold of or could hold of the tooth beyond or apical okay. to the CE junction. The CE junction is the most fragile spot in the tooth. So if I grab the tooth above at the root level and I could move the tooth, then I would do that. You know, I am not very structured to the point that I yell to students or residents for using the wrong okay. forceps in the wrong place. You know, you got a toolbox. Yes. Toolbox has a lot of <laughs> tools. And you <laughs> see what and if that tool, and so so the, the tray to yep. me is like a toolbox. My dad is a mechanic car mechanics so i am of that opinion that wrench yep, doesn't exactly. fit try another wrench and that's <laughs> like the way you that. look at it yeah that's a good yep. one the last question is what is your favorite quote do you have a quote you come back to in your life i think my favorite quote is this that i think i mentioned it to be before if a surgeon doesn't have his knife to cure with he has his tongue to cure with yeah which is meaning talk to the patient i love that you know, that when you said that quote, it reminds me a lot of TMJ patients because so many of them are not great candidates for surgery. And it really is the tongue and the communication that helps them the most. But I mean, it, yeah. So that, yeah, absolutely. That's exactly what I was thinking about. My second favorite book is When Breath Becomes Oh, Air. yes. And the, the quote is from that I book. love that book. The quote is from that book. You may not remember. When I read that sentence in that book, I said, I got a hold on it. I'm a surgeon. Sometimes my knife doesn't work. So what do I have to have? And since then, I repeat that word to students and residents all the time. Oh, my goodness. My favorite quote as a professional. Wow. And during one of my first podcasts, one of the guests mentioned that book, and I hadn't read it. And so I read it. It's, it's by Paul Kalanithi. And when I finished that book, I cried for like two days. It was just so, such a heart, you know, such a gut-wrenching story. The fact that he was writing it himself yeah. and knowing that he was going to die and that, you know, he had a little daughter, he left and it was just, just amazing. But it really changed my perspective on my, you know, my own life and how I view my patients and how I, you know, really what's important in life, I think, is of course, anyone who, yes, I, um, anyone who gets that cancer diagnosis is, you know, their life gets turned upside down and your whole perspective gets changed. But I'm so glad he wrote that book because yes. it helped me with my perspective. Me too. Me too. I read the book literally on a weekend and I just grabbed a book off the table so I can get bored in the yeah. airport. 
And I started on the airport and I couldn't put it down. I was visiting families and I snuck out to read a little bit of, and as soon as I got back on the plane, and like you said, I was sitting and, and the guy next to me watching me, like tears coming down. And I said, like, I wonder what he's thinking <laughs> of me. And like, you know, guys cry on their phone. But, but I am like you. I cry my eyes out during that book. During that book, it's a very gut-wrenching book. Yeah. But anyway, so that was my favorite quote. He asked me that. That's my second favorite book. I love it. Awesome. Yeah. All right. Well, Dr. Yeah. Abu Bakr, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us today and to kind of give some of our listeners something to think about really helpful thank you very much for inviting me awesome thank you for the opportunity to to your audience and i feel bad for taking up time on your birthday i'm sorry i'll i'll send you a gift are there any you need any tools because that's my thing i give people tools for for their (laughs) for their birthdays do you have like makita or what what do you use anything that you anything that you choose when i mean i i'm grateful just for the thought sounds good really yeah awesome yeah thank you very much all right well thank you hopefully we'll get back hopefully we get back together again on another philosophical oral surgery topic that kind of both oral surgery and philosophy let's do it all right well thank you so much and say hi to dr laskin for me i appreciate your time my pleasure thank you very much appreciate it bye Thank you for listening to this episode of Everyday Oral Surgery. If you are an oral and maxillofacial surgeon and would like to be on this podcast, please email me at grantstukey at gmail.com or text me at 720-441-6059. Also, if you have any topics that you would like to hear discussed or feedback on a certain episode that has already aired, please call or email or text me. Thanks again for listening. We'll catch you on the next episode.